Well, good afternoon, or it still actually technically is morning, so I'll say good morning to you. hope you're doing well. Well, we're in the uh, second, uh, as you know, the second chapter of Ecclesiastes, which is our study that we're going to be doing for quite a while. Uh, if you're following, we're on page four of the note. Uh, just to make sure everybody's kind of up to speed and what... Uh, what is going on in the book of Ecclesiastes? Uh, Solomon is the writer. Um, I believe it was written at the end of his life. And he's reflecting on his life. And he posits a thesis uh, at the beginning of the book, Vanity of Vanities, All is Vanity, which is uh, another way of saying everything is meaningless about life. Life is utterly meaningless. And basic to that thesis is a little phrase, under the sun, which appears 29 times in this book. And that phrase, under the sun, is another way of saying, under the sun, under where God dwells. If you do not accept that God exists, nothing makes sense. Though, as I put it, um, if you live in a closed box universe, and I hope you remember what we meant by that, it is hard to make sense out of things. And today, uh, we've seen him test the thesis by just observing the cycles of life, which is basically what chapter uh, one is all about. The second half, the importance of uh, human knowledge and human wisdom. Solomon says, you know, that too is futility, because with all my knowledge and all my wisdom, I can't straighten things out. I can't make the crooked things straight. And then last week, uh, when, when we gathered the first part of chapter two, he tests the thesis around what is, we would put it in our terms, living a life of hedonism, seeking pleasure as the primary goal of life, and not only sexual pleasure, every kind of pleasure imaginable. And he says, uh, as he reviews it, I was the king, and there was nothing, nothing that I denied myself. I tried everything. But he concludes that to his futility. Now, this morning... We want to start with verse 12, and I don't know if we'll get through this whole paragraph because this is a long one, and there's uh, not so much long in terms of numbers of verses, but some very significant um, bunny trails I want to go down. I want to have some discussion. I've tried to build that into the note uh, structure, as you probably have observed. So I'm going to call this materialism. Now, granted, in the time in which Solomon lived and the time in which you and I live, materialism would be defined a little bit differently in terms of its content. One of the things that's happened in the United States of America is that, this is not my phrase and there's an original with me, but we have democratized wealth. We have created a society and a culture in which common ordinary people can actually become, in terms of assets, very wealthy people. And, you know, the way people plan for retirement and the way people think about their lives, even middle-class people earning $100,000 a year or less can, over a lifetime, amass a significant amount of wealth. And I don't mean billions, but you know what I'm talking about. And some of you are in wealth management and banking and real estate, and you know what I'm talking about. So it would seem to me that perhaps this passage almost more than anything else, is really relevant to Americans. And how Solomon puts this is intriguing. Honestly, when I I read through it again, studied it again this morning as I was preparing, and I was just shaking my head, my goodness, you can read this kind of stuff in the Wall Street Journal. 
I mean, it's just, it's so relevant what he's saying. So let's take a look at how he introduces it in verse 12. Now, he's, he's, he, he's mentioned this before. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. The opposites, the opposites of the human condition. Wisdom on one sense and madness and folly on the other. So it's like the two extremes, a very, very wise person and a very, very foolish person. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? Meaning, similar to what he said earlier, there's really nothing new under the sun. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. What does he mean? Yeah, it's good night. He says it's kind of self-evident. It's better to be wise and foolish. It's like the difference between light and darkness. The wise man's eyes, verse 14, are in his head. But the fool walks in darkness. Okay, so let's stop there. Now, why is it obvious that it's better to be wise than a fool? Now, he uses kind of the language of poetry, but the wise man's eyes are in his head. What in the world does that mean? Say it again. It consumes you. Well, it can, but he's, I think he's saying it very positively. The, the wise man's eyes are in his head, whereas the fool walks in darkness. What's, what's the contrast? Light and dark. Yeah, the, the, the wise man knows where he's going. I mean, he has eyes. He's sought it through. He's got his eyes open, and he's looking forward, whereas the, the foolish man, he's just kind of stumbling along. Focused. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and so he's trying to say, why is it better to be wise and fool? Well, the wise man has his eyes in front of his head. He's thought things through. He's got focus. He knows where he's going, whereas the foolish man... Basically, the next thing he knows he's going to do is go to sleep tonight. He hasn't thought through much about what he's going to do tomorrow or next week or next year. He's just stumbling along in life. But then look, look at the second half of verse 14. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. What's that? Death. They're both going to die so that begs a question doesn't if both the wise man and the fool are going to die what question does that beg why be wise if the box is closed it really doesn't seem very smart to be wise from Solomon's perspective then I said to myself, and now he's answering his question, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? Though I said to myself, this too is vanity. <clears throat> I wrote in your notes there under verse 15, why then be wise? What sense does that make? Perhaps it really is better to eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow we die. 
If the box is closed, why be wise? Is it, and a corollary to where he's going with this is, is it in fact not wiser to be a fool? I have been reading um, for some work I'm doing on another project, but I've been reading a series of articles and, and indeed studies on what is happening to young men in the United States of America. Young men under the age of 30. Young men under the age of 30, it's the fastest growing proportionately now. Part of our population is still living with their parents. That they are graduating from college and graduate degrees, both proportionately and in real numbers, far, far below women in the United States. There is a significant portion of men in the United, uh, again, 30 and under, who have no purpose and no meaning for their lives. So their lives revolve around NASCAR racing, drinking, and video games. That's really interesting. Because what Solomon is talking about here, what Solomon is talking about applies to young men under the age of 30 today. They're basically living their lives as fools. They're not thinking about tomorrow. They're thinking about what am I going to do tomorrow, not 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And Solomon is concluding, you know, that's probably pretty smart. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Maybe that's a wiser way to live your life. <clears throat> Why do you think that's happening in the United States? Have you been reading about that? that t- the three authors I read on this, all of them, it is absolutely terrifying them. And two of them are not writing from a Christian perspective at all. They're just saying, this is not a good thing. This is not a good development in American culture at all, no matter how you look at it. If you peel out the uh, refugees who we went to, which do have you know, a husband, a wife, and a family, and then just look at the non-refugees segment of urban population, 98% is just the female minority. Mm. It's what? Rarely, just a female. female. I would rarely have a tenant that's a male. Mm. Rarely. Mm. And almost certainly not married. Mm. It's pretty much unheard of. I see that so few times and have had such good track record with married families, which it, it just doesn't exist. Mm. It simply doesn't exist in our society. Mm. It's only women with kids. That's all I see. I don't know where guys are at. I think they may become later, you know, as a deadbeat boyfriend. But it fits into exactly what we're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, Dave, you're hitting on one of the real reasons for this. It is the cultural phenomenon that has a lot of different labels, but it's basically the dysfunction or the breakdown of the nuclear family. It just doesn't exist in major parts of the culture. And the number of, um, the number of children born out of wedlock um, it's in the 70th percentile in the African American, in about the 60th percentile in Hispanic, and it's in the 50th percentile now in white population. So it's it's uh, it's just more and more and more the norm. 
My daughter teaches fifth grade, and she has 22 students in her class. Seven of the 22 come from two-parent families. The rest of her kids come from a single-parent family. And I think there's one where it's a guy, but the rest of the kids. And I mean, um, it's, and you did that, what Joanna's tip class is not atypical, Joanna's class is very typical. And so you just see that rolling through the culture at all kinds of levels. Because the breakdown of the family, all of the kinds of things that are a part of that, the greatest impact it's having is on men. Because guys, as they grow up, and Joanna's class is a perfect example of this, guys as they're growing have, have absolutely no male role models in their life. Absolutely none. They're, they're, they can go through a whole week, Joanna said, go through a whole week and this kid, other than the boys he sees in school, he has no males in his life. His grandmother, his aunts, his neighbors, his mother. There's no male role models at all. And it's just, as it rolls through the culture, it's creating, it's creating not completely, but it's somewhat of an accurate broad statement that many Many men are eat, drink, and be merry. And that's all I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about my future. I'm not thinking about, I'm not planning anything. I'm just living. And they sire many children. Um, in our, our church, our, our, our lead pastor, the church I'm on staff with, our lead pastor has uh, been working with a number of African American families. One of the men he's working he. He does not know how many children he's fathered. It's, it's several dozen. But he's not sure. He's not sure how many kids he has. He's lived in various parts of the country. That's just, you know, that's just a, that's a thought that is beyond any, any aspect or any reference point in my life. I just, I can't think like that. I can't imagine that. And that's probably an extreme, yet at the same time, what, is, what it's really telling us is you have a very significant number of men who are living, and I'm not saying this unkindly, living as a fool. They, are, they eat, drink, and be merry. That's my life. I'm not planning on it. I have no strategic plan for my life. I have no thoughts about where I'm going. I'm just living and I'm enjoying, and I'm just indulging in all kinds of things. Nicholas Everstadt, who works for the American Enterprise Institute, has written a very, very good, uh, it's a small book or a booklet, on the effect of great, the Great Society program on the United States. Because we're at the 50th anniversary of the Great Society of Lyndon Johnson. And it's re- it was really fascinating, it was really a fascinating essay to read. It's actually more like a booklet to read. And he, he talks about a number of the very positive. He, he identifies three major social pathologies coming out of the great society. And all three of those social pathologies affect men. And it's, um, well, if you talk to any black conservative men, uh, leaders, they will tell you that but that's the great society did more damage to the black family than slavery ever did. Mm-hmm. You look at the after 50 years of what it's done with the family. But the other thing I, I would say is, not to the same degree, but I think that across the board, black or white, uh, I've seen a huge problem with my generation in treating their kids like pets instead of preparing them to get out and be productive citizens. 
too many people in my generation have allowed those boys to come home. We wouldn't even have thought about that when I was growing up. Wouldn't even have thought about it. But you're 18 and you're figuring out how you're going to get out of there unless you're going to college. It's so acceptable to allow those kids to come back and live. And so I think my generation holds a great amount of responsibility for not just having an absolute understanding. You better get it figured out. And part of that happens when they're letting them play the video games and doing those mind-numbing things and they don't figure out what really gets them going to make it clear. There's another dimension of that, too. Um, Christina Hoff Summers, who is a sociologist at Harvard, so she's not an evangelical Christian or any kind of a perspective from Christianity, has written a series of books and a series of studies. She's a sociologist, and one of the titles is, uh, one of her books is entitled War Against the Boys. And part of what she's arguing in the book is that what we are really doing in American society over the last 25 years is trying to make little boys into little girls. You know what I mean? In other words, not not recognizing that there is a difference between a boy and a girl, and a little boy is going to play differently than a little girl. A little boy is going to be scrappy and fighty and pull girls' pigtails and, I mean, all the kinds of things. It's not that that's acceptable, but as this is a very penetrating sense, she says the, cons- or the, the solution is don't put them on Ritalin and make them become a girl. That's not the solution. Now, that's a very cynical way to put it, but that's sometimes what we do put little boys on Ritalin, and then say, okay, now I want you to act like a little girl. In the sense that don't misbehave, be good, you know, talk and share. And when a little boy wants to go out and beat up his friend and they play rough, you know. And it's like, okay, what are the boundaries? You you can't have kids beating each other up. But how do you handle those kinds of things? It's just, now I got on a long, long budding trail there. But that perspective of eat, drink, and be merry, which is the life of a fool, is what Solomon says, is really the life that many, many men in America have chosen to live. Because they have no reason, they have no reason to live differently. The state is taking care of them. And the state is taking care of their children. Isn't taking God out the picture as a big to do with this. It's not oh, how we treat our kids, but if you don't have moral kind of values and you don't have fundamentals in life and everything has been shaken, taking out of the culture and, and everything has different views to it and so the boys will grow up with no any kind of uh, responsibility on their back and not looking up for something that they need to do or accountable to anything. And this is why we have the generation that we have. It's not it's not only how we are treating them, it's how we are raising them with higher values. Well, you're right. I mean, it gets back to what Solomon is really arguing. If we are living as if the box is closed, it's going to affect everything. Whereas if the box isn't closed, which it isn't, then that should affect everything. And that's not something that is terribly widely accepted anymore. How do they get to the point of entitlement? It just seems like everybody thinks they're entitled to something. You know? That's right. I, I feel strongly that that's kind of an, the issue with today's society. Well, I think it is certainly, I mean, it depends on how you're looking at things politically or financially or spiritually. But I think without question, that entitlement 
which is what the Great Great Society, even more than the New Deal, created an entitlement mentality. It really did. And not not just among the very poor. The business world has an enormous amount of entitlement, whether it's tax breaks. I mean, all those things that they build into how they do their business, as well as education. I I was in higher education most of my life before I retired. Almost every college university in the United States could not survive if it were not for Pell Grants and guaranteed student loans. And where do they come from? The United States government. And every public school in the United States could would have to close its doors if it, if it were not for the Elementary and Secondary Education Act that was passed by Johnson. Because that has created, I mean, it's, you know, the government's tentacles are getting in for a lot of good reasons, but the impact is an, an enormous impact on our culture and how we go about solving Because the one thing probably that's not going to happen is we're going to do away with all those things. That's not going to happen. <laughs> that's, I mean, there's no way they're going to end the Spell Grant and Guaranteed Student Loan Program because 98.9999% of the college and universities would close their doors tomorrow. So that's not going to happen. And they're probably not going to end oil and natural gas subsidies. <laughs> And the problem, I mean, if we just go on and on and on, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. As, as we sit around the table here as fathers and grandfathers, and hopefully all of us uh, are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's our Lord and our Savior, uh, even for the kids that are out of our homes now, like grandchildren, how do you see us impacting uh, our children, even though they're gone and they're out, they're married and they have children, and as grandfathers living unto the Lord and nurturing them. Is a, does the nurturing stop when they leave home, or does the nurturing and the, the example of godliness are they still reading that and are they still picking up on that? What, what, what's your, and, and how can that be used by the men around this table, you think, Jim, to continue to impact uh, those people, our children and grandchildren, until we're with the Lord? Well, uh, in, in a way, you've, you stacked the question so much that it's self-evident how I should answer because I totally agree with you. Well, I think, you I think there are... Uh, there are uh, three or four things that are extremely important for us to do as parents, dads, granddads. Uh, now, this is going to sound trite, but it, I think it's, it's number one. Pray for our kids and grandkids every single day. That's probably the most important thing. And they're out from under us you know, day by day by day to pray for them. It doesn't matter where they are on planet Earth. That. That is, that is a very, very important praying, that protective hedge of God's spirit around them, uh, and that they would be exposed to the kinds of things which will deepen their, their commitment to Christ, or if they've not made that commitment, that they would make that commitment. And then that they would be praying for wisdom and discernment in their lives, that they will make wise choices. Because as you know, I mean, I taught my kids, they got nauseated after a while because I kept saying that every choice you make has a consequence. There's no such thing as an, an inconsequential uh, a decision because every time you make a decision, it's going to have a, it's going to have a consequence. 
And wisdom and discernment is an insight into the consequences of those choices. That takes time. You know, a five-year-old has absolutely no discernment at all. But by 15, 16-year-old, they should start having some significant discernment, seeing some of the consequences of choices. And then I think, uh, finally, in terms of our prayer, is that they, they would walk with the Lord in dependence on him. That's so important. So, Fred, I really think praying for them, that, that is trite, and you say, well, we, we should do that anyway. But that is, that is, that is a, an obligation, that's a discipline that I think we should be involved in. Our son and his wife uh, just called us. Um, uh, we're expecting the first grandchild, which is kind of an exciting thing to think about. But they're, they're in England, which is, you know, that's kind of a long way from here. So Peggy and I are talking, we already have a grandchild. Now, the grandchild is two, two months and about 10 days old. It's growing in Irene's, uh, in Irene's womb. But that child, and the way I understand it, that child's going to live forever. Because I think life begins at conception. That child is already has been created by God. Now it's growing, and so we're praying. For, we're praying for it. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl yet or any of that. But it's just that's something that you can start doing immediately. As soon as you hear one of your kids is pregnant, start praying for that child. But I think the second thing is, and this is this is I think almost as important. But every time we're with them. Every time, whether it's on Skype or whether it's you know flesh and blood in the same room with them, be looking and praying for opportunities to influence their lives by what they see in us. In other words, what we call modeling. That's so important because kids kids are so shrewd. If they see you talking one way and you don't live it, it's not gonna, I won't make any impact on them at all. But if they see mom and dad or grandma and grandpa living what they believe, that over time that can have a significant impact. I really mean that. And then I think uh, the, the third thing is even, even little gifts and little things we do from that, for them, ways in which they can see the Lord or see the kind of eternal values that you want them to internalize, evidence those kinds of things. Erwin McManus, in one of his books, speaks of always asking the Lord for divine appointments. I think we can do that with our kids and grandkids. Jim, can I add one thing? I really think that besides taking care of our family, I would really suggest, I think that we're called, each one of us men, that we should all be mentoring somebody. Take care of the family first, but there should be, we, we need to have men out there, and, and unfortunately to change these lives, there's got to be a lot of one-on-one. But who am I mentoring? Who are we mentoring? If we all extend ourselves outside our family and mentor one kid, I think it would make a huge difference. But I, mm-hmm. think that's, I think we're called to do that. Disciple or mentor somebody. That can, uh, that can help sharpen our own sensitivities and sensibilities as to what's important. Let's look at verse 16. For there, now, it's building on each one of these verses builds. And he's making the contrast between the wise and the fool. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. Verse 16 in your notes, For both the wise and the fool, everyone will forget them. 
And in a way, that's true. You know, you sort of have, oh, yeah, I remember Joe who lived down the street. He died 47 years ago. I don't remember much about him, but, yeah, I remember Joe. Okay. And then there was John, the other side of the street. He died about 48 years ago. I, boy, I just remember they lived there. I don't remember a lot about them. You know, it's, it's kind of like, and you know, they're the Abraham Lincolns of history, but most of us are not Abraham Lincolns. What Solomon is really saying is death, death brings the loss of memory. And over time, people forget. You see where he's headed? Look at verse 17. He's reaching a conclusion. So I hated life. Why? For the work which had been done under the sun. Remember that phrase, under the sun, 29 times in this book. It is his phrase for the worldview. Without God. It was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. You never can catch the wind. And now he goes on. And it goes on in verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Why? For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. In verse 19. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. I wrote a bit here in verse 19. I encourage you to read this with me. He is not certain whether his heirs will be foolish or wise with his wealth, the fruits of his labor. In short, he will have no control over anything after he dies. He seems to be saying that he's been wise with his time and his resources. He's worked hard. He's gained wealth. I put in parenthesis, we would say that he's worked hard, invested wisely, and has a large nest egg. A good, well-balanced portfolio. But now death stares him in the face, and he asks, Why have I worked so hard? I'm about to die and pass it all on to my heirs, and I cannot control what they will do. They do not appreciate how hard he had worked for his wealth, nor how wise he had been. This is meaningless. Another way of saying it, he's worked hard, well-balanced portfolio, is going to pass it on to his kids, and they're a bunch of fools. Now that is really a cynical way to put it. But that's what Solomon is thinking. Now tell me if that isn't relevant today. We are, and those of you in investment areas know this, we are in the middle of the greatest intergenerational transfer of wealth in the history of the world. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 trillion of wealth being transferred from the baby boomer and little older generation into it. And I, I, when I read that, I read that a couple years ago, I read that, I thought of this passage right here. What is going to happen to all that wealth? Now, we know at least probably a significant portion of it is going to be used to pay down debt because so many of this 
age group has got enormous amounts of debt. But Solomon is looking and it's just, it's really, it's really an insightful comment on Solomon's part. Now, when he, when he was saying this about 0.02% of the ancient world was wealthy, everybody else was poor by any standard. Today, when you read something like this, you're talking about, in America particularly, in Western Europe, you're talking about a very, very significant portion of the population that are passing on a fairly significant estate to their kids. I don't mean it, you know, $40 billion like Buffett, but somewhere, you know, it's not, it's not terribly unusual to have a couple today in their mid-60s to 70s having assets worth about a million dollars or more. That used to be very significant. Today, it's—I mean, I still think it's very significant. But, but you say, you know, and you say, oh, "Now, what are my kids going to do with that?" And most parents look at their kids and say, "Oh my goodness, there's no way they're going to be as wise with that as I." My parents—they lived through the, the, the Depression and World War II—and and some of the most incredibly frugal people I've ever seen. My wife's aunt. I mean, they they owned an enormous farm in Lancaster County, and I mean, their their assets were several million dollars. She would drive twenty miles so she could use a, coup- a coupon. <laughs> you know, I mean, just think of that. It's just I exaggerate a little bit, but she would go out of her way to use a coupon, where she'd say fifty cents on a. Yes, cheap too. Huh? Gas was cheap too. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I mean, it's just you know today. It's just a different, it's a different mindset. And the frugality is gone. So Solomon, not completely, but to some extent it's gone. Solomon is saying, why did I do this? Why did I work so hard? Why was I frugal? Of course, he wasn't frugal, but in saving, what, you know, why, did I, why did I do this? How would you answer that if a wealthy businessman came into your office? You knew he was a believer. You knew he loved the Lord. You knew he was walking. But he sees his kids and he's saying, why did I do all this? Let's put it another way. You, you love the Lord. You're committed to him. You're committed to his values, his morals, his ethical standards. Should you save? Should you invest? Should you be wise? Dave, what would you? How would you put that in one phrase or one sentence? What's the point of the parable of the talents? Well, no, that, 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 that's good. What I was thinking of is, is the word, uh, which is a very important biblical term, but it's also kind of a common sense word. It's stewardship. We're good stewards of what God... When God, whatever God blesses you with, he trusts you with that. That's why he gave it to you. So he trusts you with that, that you will be a wise steward with that talent, you know, to, to use the parable that Dave's referring to. Um, you know, if, if 
if that person actually mentored these kids well, raised them well, put his heart and his efforts into these kids, he's not going to be at some point selfish to say, I'm not going to pass this wealth to them because he knows how he raised them and how he, they're going to use that money, whether they're selfish or not. I think when somebody comes to this point and say, I'm going to pass this to my kids and they're foolish or my grandkids is foolish, he's a very foolish person to start with. Because it's not his money to get and it's not money to pass. He has, you know, it, it represents who he is all the way along. It's God's money who gave it to him just to him and he has to pass it along. That's my perspective. Should, um, how should you think about passing it along? Well, Joel? I think last week you used the word stewardship and you also used the word balance. Mm. Mm. They really are. It seems to me like it's difficult to make blanket statements or have a three-point plan for every person because everyone's unique and their kids are unique. But I think there's there's stewardship, wisdom, balance, mm. um, all that inter you know interplay in, in those decisions of what's what's enough. So what what would you see? What I'm what I'm trying to get us to, to do here, and that is a great start. So let, let me build on some of the comments Joel just made. We've agreed because what I'm trying to say. Okay, how do you get away from the despair that you see in verse twenty? I despaired of all the fruit of my labor. As a Christian, as a, a, a disciple of Christ, as someone who's serious about the Lord, his values, morals, and ethical standards, or your values, morals, and ethical standards. How do you deal with the despair that can come from the perspective he's, he's presenting? How do you make sure that you, if everything Solomon said about you, himself here is you, you've been wise, you've been frugal, you've invested wisely, you have a great nest egg, you're very, um, the fruits of everything you've done are there. What is it that would cause you not to despair about that? Being despaired by itself is not a godly thing. Because I'm he, sorry, it's not why? You know, feeling the despair at this moment in his life is not a godly thing. He's feeling despair because he wants to take this money for himself. He wants to invest it in himself. And he, if, even at the point that he's desperate that he wants to take his money with him when he dies and not giving to his own kids. This is a person <laughs> that, that, that wants to hug this money and hug yeah. his efforts because it's all him and it's all for him. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that's where Solomon is. That's where he would have been when he was younger. But here's at the end of his life, and he knows. Uh, he knows God. He knows he's not going to take this wealth with him to heaven. He knows what's going to happen to us. It's going to his kids. The kingdom is going to be inherited by his son Rehoboam. I mean, that's what happens. So he looks at that and he says, "My goodness, my goodness, this is despairing to me. I've worked so." so and again, assuming you're a believer, you're a person who's walked with the Lord, you've been serious and frugal and all that to the glory of God, and you have the fruit of your labor. It's in your bank account, your investment portfolio. How do you make sure that doesn't cause you to despair? Choices I make on what I would do with it from that going forward. <laughs> who I would leave it to, who I would, where would I use that, where would I use his gift that he's given me? 
that would take that would help me to get, not have the despair. Okay. It wouldn't be about me anymore. I, I think part of it too is what David alluded to uh, earlier when if we do it as unto the Lord, we get a daily blessing from that because we're doing it in fellowship with the Lord and knowing that he's given us this ability to exercise good judgment and discretion and, and stewardship. It's real. It's from him. He's given us all that we have. That's, that's true. And if we have... Um... We've done things wisely. We've been good stewards, and the God has chosen to bless us. Uh, we brought glory to Him through that. Um, there are many Christian wise investment counselors, and I think some of them are on this table. That's good, but I'm not sure we still quite answered the question I'm putting on the table. Well, I'm just thinking about you know Solomon's at the end of his life yeah. and realizing this. So yeah. Kind of. My thought is don't wait till the end of your life and, and invest in your kids, in your in other relationships during your life. You know, I think if given a choice between I want a dad that is kind of a jerk and a workaholic, but at the end of his life leaves me a great trust fund, or I want a dad that doesn't leave me a dime, but we went fishing and we play and we learn and we grew in Christ together, I don't think anyone would choose the former over the latter. Yeah. So, I mean, it's good to plan and prepare and so forth, but not make that your goal. And I mean, in other words, take part in the journey, not just the end. That's excellent. That's a, oh, finding I hope. purpose, yeah, reminding yourself of the real purpose for all of this. Yeah, exactly. Whole and it's, it's not, the, the reason Solomon uses the word despair in verse 20, it's just as Joel said, he's at the end of his life. And he's despairing not only for the where he is in the reality, but the way he's lived his life. And, and the things that even, even as he's amassed this fortune, I'm rather suspicious he knows his kids. And Rehoboam, and I don't know if you know much about him, but Rehoboam is the one who succeeded. Rehoboam was worse than his dad. And where did he get it from? From his dad. So what I'm saying is the despair is a result of all of the things that he had chosen to do through his life. It's too late. Now, in one sense, it isn't too late, but in, in a sense, it is. I want to turn over, and I think we can do this, turn over to the New Testament, to the book of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, in that order, if you're not sure where it is. Colossians, short little book, chapter 3. <clears throat> Three, verse twenty-two <clears throat> through four one. Now, let me explain one thing real quickly here. What Paul Paul's addressing a Christ-centered life and how it affects everything. And in verse twenty-two through through four one, he uses the word slave and master. Now. Please understand something. In the ancient world, the primary economic relationship was slave and master. There was not employer-employee. The large, the, the, the vast majority of the workforce in the Greco-Roman world was some form of slave, indentured servitude, all those kinds of things. And so when he uses the word slave, it's, I think it's very proper for us to substitute employee and employer. And so... First of all, what you see here is you see kind of a perspective 
in a Christ-centered, God-honoring, God-glorifying perspective on what I do for my living, my vocation. I'm going to use the word employees. Employees in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those merely pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. This is a unique construction in all of Paul's writings. The only time you see this. Colossians 3.24. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Christ the Lord all over the place. Lord Jesus Christ all over the place. Lord, singular, Christ, singular, but Lord Christ. The only time that construction is in the New Testament. And so it's unique because Lord means master. Who is your boss? Jesus. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he's done, and that without partiality. Masters, employers, grant to your employees justice and fairness, because you too know that you have a master in heaven. So as you look at a passage like this, this helps us to understand what the journey looks like, to use Joel's words. What does the journey look like? The journey is, I serve with sincerity, worshipful, serving the Lord, because I know that there's an eternal significance to what I do. That's what that verse 24 is a causal participle, because I know that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance. There is an eternal significance to what we do. And then it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Who's our boss? Whether you're an employer or an employee, who's your boss? Jesus. And so this this adds, <clears throat> excuse me, this adds an incredible dimension to the journey that we're on, and it gets you back to that verse I've cited many, many times in our study over the years, First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirty-one: Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if if you are investing wisely, you're doing that to the glory of God. You're doing that not just to amass wealth for yourself for self-indulgent reasons, but for a variety of factors, but you're doing it to the glory of God. And to be then a generous giver, a generous steward. The Bible sets a principle that as God blesses, it enables you to bless others. Now that can mean materially, it can mean in terms of time or whatever. Verse 22 through 4.1 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible in how we should live our life in the mundane aspects of life. This is a great passage for a mother who's raising three kids under six years old who constantly questions, man, what I'm doing is boring. It's day after day regimen. I'm cleaning up the stuff that comes out of both ends of my kids, their mouth and their rear, and it's a mess. And all I do is clean up dishes, and then I clean out of my other child, my father, my husband. I'm really being cynical. But it's day after day after day. How do you know when this passage helps you to see this is eternally significant stuff? Are you saying we're important in mm-hmm. what we do? That's what God says right here. And this applies to any meaningful work. Someone who's a janitor, 
someone who is you know, a, a part-time worker, some, whatever it is, this gives eternal significance to what we do. It's an attitude, it's a perspective, it's a reward. What a refreshing way to live life. When I went to, uh, Peggy and I moved to Dallas, Texas, where I was going to go uh, to seminary and pursue some graduate work in theology, but we sold everything and moved there. And uh, We moved there in July, and you don't want to move to Dallas in July. Awful. But, um, and I got hired by a company called Shaw Walker, which was, uh, they've been merged with another company now, but it was an office furniture company out of, out of uh, Michigan. And Dallas at that time was in an incredible office building boom. And, I mean, their company was doing really, really well. And this was in the 70s. I got hired to work part-time while I was in grad school, and the guy paid me 8 bucks an hour, which was, that was really good money back in the 70s. And um, I found out that I, I was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. I was doing all kinds of things um, for, the, for the company. It was an office showroom, it was offices, and it was a warehouse. And uh, after I got the job and, and kind of got the, um, the assignments of what I was going to do, I found out that on Saturday mornings I was to go in for two and a half hours, and one of the things I was to do was clean the toilets. I want to tell you, that was, that was a very humbling experience for me because, I mean, I, I already had a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and I was pursuing now a graduate degree in theology, and on Saturdays I'm there cleaning the toilets. <laughs> And I, I kept going to this passage of Scripture. I'm serious, I did. Because Peggy and I both believed God had provided this because she was working full-time in, in the county office at the seminary. But this was a great, this was a great provision from the Lord because my hours, I could adapt to everything I was doing in grad school and so on. But I kept saying, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It is the Lord, not with external service, sincerity of heart, but that taught me an awful, it really did, it taught me an awful lot about a God-honoring perspective about my work. Now, I hope you understand the spirit in which I said that. It, it was a very, very significant, for me, application of this passage. It, how, how about, like, the meek shall inherit the earth mm-hmm. and, and that passage? I mean, should you live your life if you want these certain gifts in heaven? Should you be more humble? Or, you know, a little bit different. Well, I, I'm not sure all you're you're going where you're going with that question, but let me make sure that you have clarity in what meek means. The word meek, and of course that's the English word of the translation of a Greek term, but th- that term is a is really quite a powerful term. And it has in back of it, and you're, you're correct in the sense that a part of it is humility. But meekness is really, the way the Lord is using it there, and the way that Greek word is used, is a, is a clear self-understanding. Regardless of what I do, whatever my vocation is, meekness means I have a clear understanding of who I am, a clear understanding of my gifts and strengths, and a clear understanding of my purpose and meaning in life. And would you do me a favor? And please have that same perspective when you're talking to me. You have a clear understanding of yourself. You're not putting on. There's no facade. That's what meekness means. It's a clear, solid, strong self-understanding. What you see is me. Or more correctly, grammar. What you see is I. 
predicate nominal. So meekness is this enormous strength that comes from a self-understanding that's rooted in how God sees us. And if we understand how God sees us, of infinite worth and value, we're created in his image, he's redeemed us through his son, I'm of value and worth to him, the giftedness is all for his glory. That's meekness. The meek shall inherit the earth. They're the ones that God chooses to bless in a rich way. So, and Jesus, it seems to me, Jesus modeled that. I mean, if anybody had the opportunity to be proud, it was him. But it's not what he was. His meekness was his greatest strength. He wasn't impressed by the facade the Pharisees were putting on. It didn't impress him. What impressed him was the gen- generosity and genuineness of a very poor woman who put her two mites in the offering plate. Or Zacchaeus, a tax collector who's absolutely broken by the Lord and is up on a tree in Jericho trying to see his Lord. Come down, Zacchaeus. I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. And enrages all the spiritual leaders. How come you're having dinner with that guy? Because he's found the real meaning and purpose of life. He's meek. That's, that's a perspective, I think, on that. It's a rich word. We're getting near the end, uh, but uh, today we still have about three minutes left. I don't want to use every one of those. But this, is a, this, this section in Ecclesiastes and what we dovetailed with uh, from Colossians is, is very relevant to us today, guys, because most of you, I'm going to make a statement that I hope you will agree with. Most of you form your identity around your work. That's incorrect. Your identity is in Christ. Does that sentence make sense? (laughs) Increasingly, more and more women are constructing their identity around their vocation too. It hasn't always been the case, but it is more and more the case. And I'm not saying that's bad or evil necessarily, but as you know, and I think we can observe in our culture, and this is part 